literary agent. So there it is, in cold print, the plain, unadorned phrase that will one day become unarguably true. It's not given to everyone to read of his own death, let alone when announced in passing in such a matter-of-fact way. As I write, in the dying months of the year 2008, having just received this reminder note from the future, that future still contains the opening of the exhibition and the publication of this memoir. But the exhibition and its catalogue references also exemplify still vital elements of my past. And now, rather abruptly, between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. T.S. Eliot's hollow men do not constitute my cohort, or so I hope, even though one might sometimes wish to be among the Stoics who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom. The fact is that all attempts to imagine one's own extinction are futile by definition. One can only picture the banal aspects of this event, not in my case the mourners at the funeral, again excluded by the very rules of the game itself, but the steady thunk of emails into my inbox on the day of my demise and the way in which my terrestrial mailbox will also become congested, until somebody does something to arrest the robotic electronic stupidity, or until failure to pay up leads to an abrupt cancellation of the bills and checks and solicitations, none of them ever in my lifetime arriving in the right proportions on the right day. May it be that I gain a lifetime subscription to -to face-to-face, and that this goes on forever, or do I mean to say for all eternity? The director of the National Portrait Gallery, the excellent Sandy Nairn, has written me an anguished letter in which he not only apologises for having me killed off, but tries to offer both explanation and restitution. The display, he writes, also includes a photograph of Pat Kavanagh with Kingsley Amos. A last-minute change was made to the text, and instead of it reading the late Pat Kavanagh, it refers to yourself. This kindly-meant missive makes things more poignant and more eerie rather than less. I have just opened a letter from Pat Kavanagh's husband, Julian Barnes, in which he thanks me for my note of condolence on her sudden death from cancer of the brain. I had also congratulated him on the vast critical success of his recent meditation on death, sardonically titled Nothing to be Frightened of, which constituted an extended reflection on that undiscovered country. In my letter to Julian, I praised his balance of contrast between Lucretius, who said that since you won't know you're dead, you need not fear the condition of death, and Philip Larkin, who observes in his imperishable Obard that this is exactly the thing about the post-mortem condition that actually does and must make one afraid. The sure extinction that we travel to, and shall be lost in always, not to be here, not to be anywhere. And soon, nothing more terrible, nothing more true, and specious stuff that says no rational being can fear a thing it will not feel, not seeing, that this is what we fear. So, it is at once a small thing and a big thing that I should have earned those transposed words the late, which had belonged editorially to Julian's adored wife and then became accidentally adhered to myself. When I first formed the idea of writing some memoirs, I had the customary reservations about the whole conception being perhaps too soon. Nothing dissolves this fusion of false modesty and natural reticence, more swiftly than the blunt realization that the project could become, at any moment, ruled out of the question as having been undertaken too late. 
but we are all dead men on leave, as Eugene Levinet said at his trial in Munich for being a revolutionary after the counter-revolution of 1919. There are still those, often in India for some reason, who make a living claiming land rents from the deceased. From Gogol to Google, if one now looks up the sodality of those who've lived to read of their own demise, one strikes across the relatively good cheer of Mark Twain, who famously declared the report to be an exaggeration, to Ernest Hemingway, whose biographer tells us that he read the obituaries every morning with a glass of champagne. Eventually, wearing out the cheery novelty of this, and unshipping his shotgun, to the black nationalist Marcus Garvey, who, according to some reports, was felled by a stroke while reading his own death notice. Robert Graves lived robustly for almost seven decades after being declared dead on the Somme. Bob Hope was twice pronounced deceased by the news media. On the second occasion, I was called by some network to.